whole thing. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. He's kind of one of my heroes as well. And uh, not that anyone needs to explain to me how wild you are up here in Alaska. Last night I went fishing with a bunch of guys. They said, you want to go salmon fishing? And I said, yes. And I had, I had visions of the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, sort of pristine wilderness of Alaska, you know, and, and all that. They took me uh, to Ship Creek. <laughs> so we're fishing surrounded by shipping containers. And, uh, and it was great. We didn't catch anything, but it was a lot of fun. This morning I want to look at chapter 4 of Philippians. We're going to look at just four verses, verses 10 through 13. And the theme of our passage in this hour is contentment. Contentment, a virtue that is hardly esteemed at all in our culture. In the worlds of sports and business, if you are contented... You may even be criticized as someone who isn't ambitious enough, hungry enough, you know, feisty enough to be an asset to your company or your team. Sometimes it seems as if the entire goal of the advertising industry is not to sell products, but to foment discontent by, you know, stimulating desires for things we cannot afford and do not need by inflaming appetites that cannot possibly be gratified righteously, and by appealing to lusts that, frankly, ought to be suppressed rather than cultivated and encouraged. The world is constantly screaming at us that we should not be content with our lives and our possessions. Contentment is not an easy thing to cultivate in the culture such as which we live. The main language of political discourse in America, is grousing and complaining. Now, I don't know how it is actually up here in Alaska, but down in the lower 48, you can hear grousing and complaining nonstop from both the left and the right on drive-time talk show radio. Whether you are one of the poor and disenfranchised or a member of the rich and privileged class, those who claim to speak for you are unhappy with the way things are going. They are displeased that you are not getting your fair share of the benefits. They're convinced that you are being forced to bear more than your fair share of society's economic burden, and they are certain that government policies are going to make your life worse, not better. And so discontent is fodder even for comedy and other forms of entertainment. Have you ever thought about how many popular songs are simply drawn-out complaints and ballads of discontent, dissatisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. There's even a song titled, Glad to be Unhappy. We have whole musical genres for, you know, songs of complaint, protest songs, angry rap, sad ballad, the blues. And that's not a criticism of any style, but... It should be clear from the kinds of songs we enjoy and the, and the sheer number of songs like that that our culture is oversaturated with discontent. Not to mention our comedy. Comedy has taken a very hard edge since the early 1960s, you know, and it used to be Leave it to Beaver and, and nice little funny things about happy families. Not anymore. Comedy has taken this hard turn and it's hard edged. And it's not just because bad language and lascivious subject matter have taken over the, in, the entertainment industry. It's partly that, but not completely. The one theme that runs through most forms of entertainment, and especially comedy routines, is this relentless spirit of discontent, complaining, self-pity. I think it's practically an occupational requirement these days for every stand-up comedian to have a routine about all the little insignificant things that make us unhappy. And can I be candid? Even some churches suffer from this fault. You know, the supposed gurus of church growth deliberately cultivate discontent among pastors, telling pastors your church isn't big enough or cool enough or innovative enough to matter. And yet, imagine... If you could go back to Philippi in the first century and take a dozen random church members who are accustomed to that culture, Philippi, and somehow transport them through time and bring them here for 12 hours, 
Show them all the conveniences, household appliances, modes of travel and communication that we take for granted. Let them listen to our iPods and play with our smartphones. Show them the abundance of our food, the relative wealth of even the poorest small church pastor. Uh, you know, show them a, a gathering of Christians here set in the beauty of Alaska, and let them see that not only the Word of God, but also volumes and volumes of Bible study aids are readily available to us, and not just in hard copy formats, but you can literally these days carry a large library of resources around on an iPod, iPad. Now, imagine if you had to explain to that simple first century believer why we find it so hard to be content with what we have. Words would fail, wouldn't they? And let me confess to you that I do my fair share of grousing, especially when I'm driving. And it drives Darlene crazy to hear what I mutter under my breath about other drivers. You know, they drive too slow or too fast. They're too risky or they're too hesitant, you know? They slow me down or they're too impatient to get around me. They don't signal before a lane change. They signal, but then they don't move quickly enough. You know how it is. For me, one of the hardest places to avoid being a complainer and to maintain my sanctification is when I'm seated behind the wheel, except when I'm seated in the passenger seat and Darlene's driving. Now, those are all just petty things, but they they bring out a spirit of discontent in me, and that's really my point. Nothing is more natural for us than discontent, and nothing comes more spontaneously from our lips than complaining. I was there for the birth of each of my three sons, and every one of them came into this world complaining loudly. (laughs) Some of us never really do get over that tendency. Contentment, even when we have it, seems short-lived and slippery. You know all about this, I'm sure, from your own bitter experience. It goes all the way back to our childhood. There may have been something as a child you wanted badly, some plaything or possession or item of clothing. You daydreamed about it. You felt that if you could just get that one thing, your life would be complete, and you would never want anything so badly again. But the day finally came that you got what you wished for, maybe as a Christmas gift, or you purchase the longed-for item after months of saving your allowance or whatever, and when your wish was finally realized, it was nowhere near as satisfying as you thought it would be. I know you've had that experience because it's the common experience of all of us. And frankly, wealth and material things don't get any more satisfying the older you get and the more you accumulate. And that's why people who can afford whatever they want keep getting new cars, sometimes every six months or so. We can't get no satisfaction. Moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal, and whatever pleasures we derive from material things, earthly fame, worldly power, or the treasures of this life, that pleasure is short-lived and, as I said, slippery. That is the common experience of us all. And yet, discontent is no minor transgression. A lack of true contentment is the seedbed in which sins like covetousness, lust, anger, hatred, and a host of grosser evils are bred and cultivated. In fact, think about it. The the devil's very first temptation of Eve purposely invoked a feeling of discontent in her by suggesting that all the trees in the Garden of Eden were not really food enough as long as God placed a restriction on that one forbidden fruit. And then the devil questioned the truthfulness and the clarity of God's commandment. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then Satan lied. You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, God is holding back from you something that is better than what he has given you. Don't be content with such things as you have. Pursue that which God has forbidden as well. And doubt, married with discontent, was thus the only temptation Satan needed to unleash an entire universe of evil, sorrow, 
suffering, shame, and guilt. So discontent is no minor sin. Now, the passage we're looking at in this hour is perhaps the definitive passage on the subject of contentment, and it tells us how the saints may expect to acquire contentment. Given that dissatisfaction is our natural tendency, knowing that in our fallen state we are thoroughly corrupted with sinful desires, covetous hearts, evil appetites, and deeply distressed sensing our our utter inadequacy when it comes to being truly contented, how can we come by this virtue of contentment? How can we be contented people? Now, let's, let's not forget that the Apostle Paul very humbly confesses in Romans 7 that if he has a besetting sin, it's the sin of covetousness, evil desire. Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, he writes... I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And the covetousness Paul is describing there might include everything from sexual lust or gluttonous cravings to an inordinate desire for material advantages or a constant craving for creature comforts. All of that is rooted in discontent, and all of it breeds more and more discontent. So we're, we're not to imagine that contentment comes naturally to Paul, or that he was specially endowed with some spiritual gift that made satisfaction and serenity e- 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 easy virtues for him to attain. He's actually talking about something we know he struggled with. Contentment was just as foreign to Paul as it is to you and me. And furthermore, as he writes this epistle to the Philippians, he is literally being held in shackles under the eye of Roman soldiers in the city of Rome. In chapter 1, verse 13, Paul refers to his imprisonment and to the imperial guards who were, in effect, his jailers and his only companions. Chapter 4, verse 22, he sends greetings from the saints who are members of Caesar's household. So it's clear in Philippians that he is being held in Rome as he writes. And according to Acts 28, verse 16, during this point in Paul's life, he was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. In other words, he was being kept under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier, and under the rules of Roman jurisprudence, Acts 28, verse 30 and 31 says he lived there two whole years at his own expense, so he had to still buy his own groceries and pay his own rent and pay all of his expenses, but he lived in this house under house arrest for two whole years and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Still, however, Paul was awaiting trial in the court of Caesar. This was apparently sometime between the years 60 and 63 A.D. And so we know precisely who Caesar was. From the years 54 to 68, the emperor of Rome was Nero. Nero, a ruthless man who tolerated no hint of subversion, no no, uh, whisper of disloyalty, no example of rebellion against the established norms of Roman culture, and Paul therefore constantly faced the very real possibility that he would have to die for his faith. In fact, a final decision on his, out, on his, on his verdict was imminent when Paul famously says in Philippians 1 verse 20 that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, to live is Christ, to die is gain, He was facing a looming court date with Caesar, who would rule on his case one way or the other. And in chapter 2, Paul says the final outcome of his case will be decided very soon. He says so in verse 23 of chapter 2. I hope to send Timothy just as soon as I see how it will go with me. He's talking about the outcome of his ruling, and he hopes for a favorable ruling because, verse 24, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. 
So there's a possibility he'll be released. He's waiting to find out. But given Nero's cruel and capricious tendencies, there was a very real possibility that Paul might suffer martyrdom. Chapter 2, verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And in fact, Paul says he was in a quandary knowing which outcome to wish for. Verses, chapter 1, verses 22 through 24 is where he says, uh, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, ultimately, of course, Paul would be called upon by Christ to make the supreme sacrifice. But according to the closing verses of the book of Acts, this first long imprisonment, which began in Acts 21, verse 30, with with Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, this long ordeal for him finally ended after two years of house arrest in Rome, and Paul was given a few more years of freedom four or five years at the most, and he had those final few years to minister openly before he was ultimately brought to Rome a second time and put to death for his testimony. And so this is the setting of Philippians. Paul is nearing the end of that first imprisonment, which was the culmination of what for him had been a terribly long ordeal. It stretched over years. By the chronology of Luke's account, it has now been about five years Since Paul was arrested, remember he was arrested under false pretenses in Jerusalem. Jewish leaders had seen Paul in in the city proper of Jerusalem, and he was traveling there with Trophimus, who was a Gentile. And when they later saw Paul on the temple grounds, they wrongly supposed that Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple, which would have been a capital crime to bring an uncircumcised Gentile into the temple, but they accused him of that, and they drummed up a mob. Luke says all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They dragged Paul out of the temple. They beat him nearly to death. He was arrested. He was repeatedly put on trial. The whole story takes up much of the second half of Acts. And none of the Roman governors in Israel wanted to risk the political consequences of either condemning Paul or turning him loose. So he's like a political hot potato. And finally, it seemed the only way to make progress in what had already become a political mess for Paul and had had really put a halt to his evangelistic ministry, the only way out was for him to assert his Roman citizenship and appeal his case directly to Caesar, and so that's what he did. And he was transported by prison ship across the Mediterranean in the during the worst weather of the year. He you remember suffered shipwreck. He was dragged in chains from Malta to Sicily to Calabria, that's the toe of the Italian boot. He was taken from there by ship to the Bay of Naples and then brought from there via the Appian Way to Rome. And he's now been nearly two years confined to a house or a cottage somewhere in Rome, forced to live there at his own expense, chained constantly to Roman guards. Virtually everything about his life and circumstances was beset with obstacles, hardships, constraints, hazards and difficulties of every kind. We know he suffered loneliness because friends and fellow workers abandoned him because he was such a political hot potato. He was deprived of most of the means of both fellowship and study. According to chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, he was despised and seen as a troublemaker and a liability or even regarded as a rival by some in the area who went around preaching the gospel. So even his fellow Christians sort of turned their back on him. Paul suggests that these, you know, Roman gospel preachers were so driven by their hatred of him that some of them were preaching insincerely out of spite, not really that they wanted to work for the furtherance of the gospel, but because they hoped to add to Paul's afflictions. And yet... Paul testifies to the Philippians that he's contented. 
Now, notice this very carefully. Paul is not attempting to suggest that he is an easily satisfied or naturally contented person. That would contradict what he says in Romans 7. But he expressly says in our passage that contentment is something he has learned through his trials. Chapter 4, verse 11, I have learned, verse 12, again, I know, and again, I know, why Paul? Because I have learned, or if you're reading the King James Version, I am instructed, and here he uses an expression borrowed from the mystery religions, which suggests that he has been initiated into this secret knowledge of how to be content. It's a very strange word for someone like Paul to use. He is more or less confessing, again, that this is not his native tendency to be content. But he has gained this knowledge. He has learned contentment. It's a strength he has come to understand and master through his time in the school of tribulation. He gained this quality through a process of training and indoctrination and discipline. It isn't a grace that was given to him in full-blown fashion, ripe and mature with immediate effect, but it's something he has learned over time. So bear that in mind as I read the text, because I think it's the main point Paul is making. Here's our passage, Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, by the way, this passage is the culmination and the key text of this whole epistle. It's a very important text. It ties the whole epistle together. It reflects one of Paul's main reasons for writing to the Philippians in the first place. This epistle is a thank you note for gifts that the Philippian church had sent to Paul. And this section is where he expressly uh, sends them his gratitude. Furthermore, every spiritual lesson contained in this entire epistle is ultimately brought together in this section, and it is either exemplified, expanded upon, accented, or made practical, and then sealed with the promise of Christ's enabling strength, which Paul mentions, of course, in verse 13, a verse most of you have memorized. And in the course of of thanking the Philippians, Paul not only declares his own complete contentment, he expounds on his gratitude in a way that shows us, in very practical terms, how we can attain the same kind of contentment. This is the chief practical value of this passage. Paul basically outlines the instruments of instruction whereby he learned to be content, and there are four of them. The Lord's people the Lord's providence, the Lord's promise, and the Lord's power. And there they are, neatly alliterated for you. And we'll work our way through this passage with that as our outline. So if you didn't get all four, just keep your notes handy, because we're going to look at them one at a time. Here are four instruments of instruction that can help us master the art of contentment. First, the Lord's people the Lord's people. Paul and the Philippians had always had an especially close relationship. Most of you will remember the circumstances under which that church was founded. It's one of the famous episodes of the book of Acts, and the whole story is told by Luke in Acts 16. Philippi, Luke tells us, was a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Paul and his missionary team, he traveled with a little team of people, they went there in response to a vision Paul received through a dream in which a Macedonian man appeared to him in the dream and said, come over to Macedonia and help us. That was the first recorded entry of the gospel into Europe. And the Philippian church was the first church ever planted on European soil. And by the way, this is also the exact point in Acts 
where Luke starts using first-person pronouns. He evidently, this is where he joined up with Paul in Troas, just before Paul went into Macedonia. But the founding of this church was fraught with difficulties and disasters. There, there apparently was not enough of a Jewish community in Philippi to sustain a, a synagogue, which means there were fewer than ten Jewish men because that was required for a quorum to start a synagogue. If there weren't ten men, and, and that number goes all the way back to that account of uh, Abraham, you know, interse- interceding for a lot in Sodom. If there's just ten righteous men, don't destroy the city. And so it took, according to Hebrew tradition, ten men to start a synagogue and keep the synagogue going. And since there wasn't one in Philippi, we assume there weren't even ten Jewish men in the town. And so in lieu of going to the local synagogue first, which is what Paul customarily did, this time in Philippi, he found a little prayer meeting by the riverside, and he preached to the group that was gathered there to pray, most of them women. Lydia is the first convert mentioned in Luke's record of how this church started, but there was also a slave girl there, demon-possessed, who, remember this, she followed Paul and his team around crying out, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Which I find interesting. Here's this demon declaring that these are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. That's true enough. In fact, it's it's a great thing to have somebody say about you. But Paul didn't want anyone thinking this demonic soothsayer was in league with him. And besides, in the mouth of a demon... Even the truth is a blasphemy. Remember that Satan quoted Scripture to Jesus. A devil will tell the truth one minute and mix it with a lie the next. And so Paul cast out this demon before it had a chance to sully the truth with any lies. Turn around and and rebuke the demon and cast it out of this girl. And that cost the owners of this slave girl their livelihood. Because after that she didn't go into a trance and prophesy anymore. And so the men who owned this slave girl drummed up false charges against Paul and Silas and had them thrown into prison. And then there was an earthquake, and the city jailer was converted. Do you remember all of this? And when the magistrates realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, they were frightened because they'd thrown him in prison. You don't do that with a Roman citizen, especially in a Roman colony. And so they came and personally apologized to him, and that's how the church at Philippi got started. And so the believers in Philippi had always maintained a close relationship with Paul. He was their, Paul, he was their, he was their spiritual father. They were perhaps closer to him rather than any other church. They supported him financially in a uniquely generous way. Several times in the early years, they sent him financial support. And he reminds them of that here in Philippians 4. Look at verses 15 and 16. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And they followed Paul's career from then on. The church, it's hard to get the chronology because obviously scripture doesn't give us the years, but the church seems to have been founded around AD 51 or 52 at the latest And this epistle pertains to events that happened around A.D. 62 or 63. So more than a decade has elapsed since the Philippians were first converted under Paul's ministry. And for some time they had prayed for him and supported him financially, maintained their relationship with him as their spiritual father. No wonder. They owed him everything, spiritually speaking, and they seem to have felt that debt deeply, it's clear that their spiritual and financial partnership, together with their friendship and prayer support, meant a lot to Paul. Because remember, he's in prison in Rome, and everybody there has abandoned him, and even some of the Christians there are trying to make things more difficult for him. So he valued this relationship with the Philippians. They helped him bear his burdens Paul was deeply grateful to them. Philippians 4, verse 14, It was kind of you to share my trouble. But then, somewhere along the line, they stopped giving. Precisely 
Why and for how long, we don't know. But the language suggests it had been a long time since Paul had heard anything from them. Verse 10, Now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. At last. And it's clear that Paul wondered what became of their kindness and care for him. Long period of silence. But finally, at some point during Paul's house arrest in Rome, some late point along the way, they sent a messenger, Epaphroditus, with a package of gifts for Paul. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. And having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And that's why Paul is writing. He's sending his thanks back to them through Epaphroditus. He wants them to know that he has learned, in part because of them, the Lord's people, he has learned how to be content. Now, notice that in spite of this long period of unexplained silence, Paul overflows with thanksgiving. You have revived your concern for me, verse 10. He uses a word there that evokes the idea of a barren tree that finally buds at springtime. And the idea is, your concern for me may have appeared to die, but I know it was never dead. It was just waiting to burst forth in due time. I might have wondered once, he said, but now I know that you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, what does that mean, you had no opportunity? It, it is not entirely clear why they lacked opportunity to help Paul. He might be acknowledging that they lacked the financial means, means to send him more money. Or it might have been the case that no messenger was available or no safe or suitable form of transport was available for such a mission to Rome. We don't know. Whatever the case, Paul is assuring them that he loves them and he knows they love him and that knowledge to him is more important than the gift itself. Notice that Paul recognizes and expresses gratitude for their personal concern in verse 10. And he doesn't actually mention the gift they sent until verse 18, which is really comes at the tail end of his expression of thanks. The, the gift itself is the least of the things he's thankful for. He's thankful for their partnership, for their friendship. Now, some men might have complained of the neglect and uncertainty during such a long period of silence. But Paul had truly learned to be content, satisfied, even, even more satisfied by the knowledge of the Philippians' love for him than he was with whatever gift they sent him. This is a touching and tactful and classy way of saying thanks. Notice, Paul is modeling for the Philippians the very attitudes he has urged them to adopt. Charity and unity towards one another. The mind of Christ who humbled himself and above all, a spirit of joy and rejoicing. Which which is the very theme of this epistle, by the way. The whole theme of Philippians is joy. Do all things, chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning. That is precisely what he does as he deals with the subject of their long silence. Not grumbling about it, not questioning it. He just thanks them for their generosity. Now, earlier in our chapter, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. He's doing that. And verse 8, Whatever is honorable, whatever is worthy of praise, think about these things. He's doing that too spurning anxiety, reveling in the peace of God, a blessing he shares in common with the Lord's people. How could a man in such a state of mind not be content? And that is one of the keys to contentment for you and for me as well, to learn to enjoy the things of God with the people of God, and then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is the very definition of true contentment. But there's more. Not only were the Lord's people uh, an instrument of instruction through which Paul learned to be content. Here's instrument number two, if you're taking these down. Number two, the Lord's providence. The Lord's providence. Verse 11. 
not that I am speaking of being in need. In other words, Paul says, I'm, look, I'm grateful for your concern, but it's, it's not because I'm destitute and desperate. God is the one who providentially supplies my needs, and in the same way, verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so, he says, don't interpret my overflowing thankfulness to you as a kind of veiled grievance against God's kindness to me. I'm not complaining about the treatment I have received from God's hand of providence. And he goes on, verses 11 and 12, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In other words, providence has taught me to be satisfied no matter what. And notice the three pairs of opposite extremes here. Paul is content whether he is abased, and that means brought low, humbled, degraded, disgraced, or whether he abounds, whether he flourishes and thrives and prospers. The New American Standard Bible translates it this way. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. But I actually think that the gist of the Greek expression says less about Paul's financial situation and more about his sense of personal pride. Literally, I think this is more what it means. I, I, I might be humbled or I might prosper, and I can be contented either way. And the second couplet comes later in the verse. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. And there the contrast is between feast and famine. He's talking about his need for physical nourishment, food. Paul had literally at times been deprived of edible sustenance during that long imprisonment, the shipwreck, and all of that. And then the third pair of terms is clearly a contrast between material wealth and poverty, abundance and need. In all of these circumstances, Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content. Now, I mentioned this earlier. I want to come back to it. That expression is significant. I have learned the secret. And he uses an expression which was commonly used in the mystery religions. Literally, he's saying, I have been initiated into the secret of contentment. Now, of course, and I I feel I hardly need to say it, Paul was not endorsing any kind of mystery religion or quasi-Gnostic notion of secret knowledge And the Philippians, who knew him well, would understand that. But by using this kind of terminology, he signifies that contentment is by no means an easy virtue to master. It's not, as we might be tempted to think, a minor or commonplace or simple virtue. I think we think that way, you know? Contentment, that's kid stuff. It's not. Contentment is advanced holiness. This is accelerated spirituality. This is postgraduate level sanctification. And it's not the sort of grace, you know, that comes prepackaged in some standard dose like a pill you swallow and you're done with it. Contentment is something you are initiated into and then learn and master through long discipline and difficult experience. It's, it's more like mastering some high art or understanding the the details of some arcane mystery. More like that than it is like learning to ride a tricycle. It's not an easy virtue. And every turn of divine providence is an instrument of training to help us master the art of contentment. Whether we get riches or poverty, feast or famine, exaltation or humility, or, more likely, at various times we get doses of all of the above, the purpose of providence in taking us from wealth to want, health to hunger, height to humiliation, God's purpose is always to teach us contentment by showing us that in Christ we have all we need. He is our all in all. By the way, can I confess something to you? I find prosperity and popularity and material abundance are much bigger hindrances to contentment than poverty and plainness and a shortage of resources. 
We tend to equate contentment, you know, with material things and worldly success. Our idea of contentment is having every material thing we could possibly want. And if you find yourself thinking that way, you need to rebuke your own heart. Jesus himself said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke 12, 15. And that's not where contentment lies. If you're seeking contentment by trying to accumulate wealth, that's the wrong approach. And that is absolutely true. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I I ran across an article at the Life Magazine website while I was doing research on this passage. I found this article at Life Magazine featuring a long list of Hollywood celebrities who, at the very height of their success and popularity, not after they became old and forgotten, but when they were at the height of their success and the height of their popularity, they committed suicide. And it's amazing how many examples of that there have been. Reaching the top of the world's ladder, they find popularity and riches and success and fame and privilege. These things do not bring contentment. And in utter despair, then, they end their own lives. What a tragedy. And it's a reminder that the truth of Jesus' words we ought to take to heart. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But everything we truly need, everything that can truly satisfy, is found only in Christ. And that gets us to point number three. These are the tools of training whereby we are taught contentment. First, the Lord's people. Second, the Lord's providence. Now third, the Lord's promise. And I'm going to take you just outside our text for the actual wording of the promise that really permeates this whole passage. Our section technically stops at verse 13, but look for a moment down at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That is the same promise on which Paul's own contentment was based. He refers to it obliquely in verse 11, where he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need. In other words, he's saying I'm not really in need. He wanted to make it clear that he was not someone in need. He knew very well that all his actual needs were met with full sufficiency in the grace of God. Remember, that's what God told him. My grace is sufficient for you. And this wasn't some advanced dose of grace. This is the very same grace that was first shown to Paul on the road to Damascus. And that lesson was then reinforced for Paul as he describes in 2 Corinthians 12. That's where, he remember, he besought the Lord three times to remove the thorn from his flesh because some messenger from Satan was harassing him. We don't even know what it was but something that troubled him, and he regarded it as a messenger directly from Satan. And he tells us in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, God said to him after he prayed three times to have it removed, God said, but my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Why? Because Christ supplied all his need. And then in the very next verse, Paul says, 2 Corinthians twelve ten, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Is that not an amazing statement? I am content with these things. Weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And trust me, if you can be content with those things, you'll be contented no matter what. This is a principle that applies to every Christian in every church in every era. My God will supply every need of yours. Not necessarily your desires, not every craving you have, but all that you truly need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, which is to say he has an abundant supply and his resources will not run out before your need is met. Learn to trust that promise at all times and you will, like Paul, master the secret mystery of contentment. So these one last time are the training tools by which Paul had learned contentment. First, the Lord's people. Second, the Lord's providence. Third, the Lord's promise. And now finally, fourth, the Lord's power. Here is Paul's 
final punctuation to all the practical instructions he's been giving the Philippians from the start of this epistle. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And he points us to the Lord's own power as the ultimate answer to every hint of human discontent. Now, Paul was not so foolish as to think he could summon contentment by sheer willpower. He didn't think that. He knew he did not have the strength in himself to withstand trials and suffer hardship after hardship without a sense of gnawing resentment and discontent. But, and this is probably the greatest lesson Paul learned and the most important truth about sanctification he ever teaches us, Paul did not expect or attempt to achieve holiness in his own strength. He knew that in and of himself he was bereft of true righteousness. He was inclined to evil passions, just like you and me. He was too full of self, too encumbered with fleshly weaknesses to be holy in the sight of God. We all are. Now, Paul had tried all of that in his earlier life as an unregenerate Pharisee, and that's exactly what his testimony, just a chapter earlier than this, is all about. Philippians 3, this is the whole difference between Saul of Tarsus and Paul the Apostle, Philippians 3.10, whereas Saul of Tarsus took pride in his own flawed achievements, the Apostle Paul desired only to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. Now that's talking about the imputed righteousness we all receive when we are justified. It's Christ's righteousness basically transferred to our account by imputation. But Paul understood that if we are too impotent to concoct a righteousness of our own for justification, there's no way we're ever in our own power going to be able to achieve perfect sanctification. And whenever Paul talks about sanctification, he stresses the truth of his absolute reliance on the power of Christ as the only means of daily sanctification. Sure, he says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, sure, I worked harder than anyone, and then he hastens to add... It was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. I worked hard, yet not I, but the grace of God that's within me. By the grace of God, he says, I am what I am. And he says the same thing in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And here in our text, verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There is perhaps no more confident statement in all of Scripture. But this is not brazen self-confidence. It's confidence in the power of Christ. By the way, the Greek derivation of the word content in verse 11 is interesting. It's a Greek word that literally means self-contained or self-sufficient. But, as the context makes perfectly clear, this is not a manifesto for self-esteem and possibility thinking. Although verse 13 is sometimes ripped out of context and used that way. People quote verse 13 as if it meant, with Jesus' help you can achieve whatever dream you have for yourself. That is not the idea at all. This is not someone who, who wants to do something, and so he's going to draw on Christ's strength to to fulfill his own wishes. This is someone who wants to do the will of God, and he knows he's too weak and too sinful to do it, and now he's laying hold of Christ's power to do in him what he knows he cannot do on his own. And the the appropriate cross-reference is 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And so, in the words of Ephesians 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. There's, not, there's no room for even so much as an iota of carnal self-esteem here, if you understand this principle. Now, 
Let me sum up in a simple statement what this passage is saying about contentment. The real reason true contentment is not dependent on external circumstances. You know, it's not affected by life's up and downs. It's, it's, not, it's not driven by material things or earthly comforts. The reason is that true contentment has nothing to do with those things. It is impervious to earthly troubles, and they are irrelevant to contentment. Authentic contentment, when you break it down and analyze it, is simply grown-up faith come to fruition. Contentment is the same faith by which we first lay hold of Christ, that same faith learning to cling to Him, to love His people, to trust His providence, to believe His promises, and to draw on His power. You do that, and you will cultivate a spirit of contentment Nothing in this world could ever threaten. In the words of verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's like laying hold of heaven early. In fact, that's precisely what it is. It's a preview of the settled rest of heaven. Now, you might think it's impossible to live in the real world and all its troubles and, and get to that point of faith. It is impossible for you and for me in our own power. But I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that's what Paul is saying here. By the way, verse 13 contrasts wonderfully with Jesus' statement in John 15, verse 5, where he says, apart from me you can do nothing, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If the boundaries for all things that you seek to accomplish, if your boundaries on that are set by the express commands of God and the righteous example of Christ, then there truly is no limit to what you can accomplish through His power. That's the secret to true contentment. And it's not really a complex mystery. But the reason it is so difficult to learn is that it entails the mortification of our worldly lusts, our carnal ambitions our selfish pride, and our ungodly attitudes. Hard? Yeah. That's a lifelong pursuit. But it's by no means impossible. We can do all things through Him who strengthens us. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our hearts are full of covetousness, evil desire, dissatisfaction. Teach us contentment. May we learn to be satisfied with Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. May we learn to appreciate the eternal value of the riches that belong to us in glory in Christ Jesus. And may we learn to trust you each day to supply all our needs. May we therewith be content. We pray in the name of Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.